Yonit Levy from Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian here in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts to Jews on the News. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing all right, actually, Yonit. It's snow is falling. There's a gentle, whispery cover of snow on the streets of London. It looks almost Dickensian. It's rather lovely. And here it's sunshine in about 20 plus degrees. Yeah, so thank I don't you. know who is thank who is yes, here. I know. <laughs> now we are recording on a Thursday. This does air on Friday. So maybe in the interim, President Biden will actually call Prime Minister Netanyahu. I'm not sure, but it hasn't happened thus far. Call me maybe. I love the story. <laughs> so I I mean everything about this. The it, it, didn't this all start with a tweet? It did indeed. It blew up uh, with a tweet from former Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Danone, pleading with uh, Biden to call, and I quote, the leader of Israel, the closest ally of the US, and for the topper, including the real number of the switchboard in the prime minister's office. Although I, one of my Guardian colleagues discovered that if you call the number, it is you get a number unobtainable. No, it, it, is, it, it is jammed up because now he gave the number to the whole world. But look, first and foremost, I think you have to say that he broke the unwritten Israeli rule, which is essentially say anything you want about the country and about the leader when you're inside Israel with your Israeli friends talking in a language no one else can understand. But don't make us look bad in front of the Gentiles, right? I mean, we all knew or realized that the president is not calling the Israeli prime minister, but we thought, you know, maybe it's because he lost the number or he lost his phone, or maybe he's seeing other leaders behind us and he was back. But uh, obviously, Danone made it quite public. Well, he drew attention to the fact that other yep. leaders, because he agreed the tweet consists of this list of all the other countries whose leaders Joe Biden has called. So it actually advertises... Uh, not necessarily Israeli weakness, but, you know, Netanyahu's disfavor yep. in the eyes of the um, Trump administration. So that is already, uh, you know, a political no-no. I have to say for a Brit, it was, there's a very kind of, uh, there, there was a moment of recognition in seeing this because there is always this huge neediness that the Brits always display about this phrase, the special relationship. They're always desperate mm -hmm. that the, uh, you know, what they call the special relationship is acknowledged by the Americans. They always really want to know that they're still number one. And they turn themselves inside out, British diplomats, over who got the phone call first, who got the first meeting. You might remember to, uh, Donald Trump's very first guest at the White House was Theresa May from London. You know, they really make a big performance of it. And other countries are usually a bit cooler about it, I, I always think, from here. But not this time. I mean, to have the, uh, you know, an Israeli official or former official draw the world's attention to the fact that, you know, you don't ring, you don't... I mean, there was this great tweet, I think, from Seth Rogen, wasn't it? Saying this is the most <laughs> Jewish tweet ever, saying, what, you don't call called. anymore? Right. I mean, I think there's a future in comedy for Mr. Rogan. I really do. Um, you know, <laughs> it, 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 remember how Henry Kissinger once noted that Israel has no foreign pol policy, only internal politics. So this story is proof of that. We have to maybe make note of the fact that uh, Danone has a beef with Netanyahu. He's currently chairman of the World Likud. He's not exactly, has never been exactly Netanyahu's BFF, unless you think BFF means best foes forever. <laughs> um, he was a thorn in Netanyahu's side. He was sort of kicked upstairs to a prestigious job in the UN. And now he's back and he thinks he he didn't get the prominent role he deserves. Hence, this tweet. 
Ah, uh, so he's actually drawing attention to Netanyahu's weakness. Exactly. He's he trying to make Netanyahu look bad, not Israel look bad. Ah, uh, well, that's, that's a good additional layer because the reaction from people who saw it was very much as if to say, well, look, this is what you get. You make your bed and you lie in it. Aaron David Miller, who was one part mm-hmm. of the uh, Middle East negotiating team back in the day, I think even in the Camp David period in 2000 and the Clinton period, he sent a, a, you know, a reply to Danny Danon saying, look, a call will come, but a clear message is being sent. Netanyahu was Donald Trump's third call. To quote Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. Meaning, you keep you made a, a big point of how close you were to Donald Trump. You know, your picture, BB, of you and Trump was your banner image on your Twitter profile right until January the 11th, you know, days after even the events on Capitol Hill. You clearly sided with Trump and therefore don't expect to get the red carpet treatment from the Biden crowd, and, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore. This is not the halcyon days of life with Donald. Yep, this has yep. changed. Go back to your usual place in line after being used to cutting the line. There's a new tenant in the White House. Um, I have to just also point out that uh, Asaf Sharif, who is the Israeli consul uh, uh, general in New York, uh, reminded me of a quote by James Baker. Let's listen to that. If that's going to be the approach and that's going to be the attitude, there won't be any dialogue and there won't be any peace, it's going to take some really good faith, affirmative effort on the part of our good friends in Israel. Everybody over there should know that the telephone number is 1-202-456-1414. When you're serious about peace, call us. So this is James Baker, the then Secretary of State, giving the number of uh, the White House to Israelis. He was exacerbated by their intractability of of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Um, And this eventually led to the Madrid conference and to convention and to Oslo. So who knows what this, what Danone's tweet will lead to. Yeah, I mean, and and maybe, you know, they should just clear the switchboard because right (laughs) now that number, the one that Danny Danone gave you, is not working. (laughs) Clear the switchboard. And with us, I think we can move on, Jonathan. Uh, All things considered, not the greatest week for Netanyahu. Um, His trial resumed on Monday in front of three judges in the district court in Jerusalem. He is charged in three separate corruption cases, accused of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Netanyahu officially responded to the allegations with a plea of not guilty. The next stage, we do this quite slowly in Israel, the next stage, the evidentiary stage, will probably be delayed until after the elections. There are 333 witnesses in the three different cases, uh, and they will probably be heard only after March 23rd. It is very, very slow. I mean, justice delayed is justice denied. This has gone on for years and years. Uh, and from the outside, it looks as if it's very helpful for Netanyahu because he gets to just stay there being prime minister throughout all of this. Uh, is this special treatment for him? Or if, you know, if I was a regular guy pursuing, you know, a business partner who'd stiffed me on the on the accounts, would I also have to wait years and years and years in Israel? Is that just how it rolls? Well, yeah. first of all, the uh, judicial system is very slow in this country. It isn't foul play. The judges, the minute the evidentiary uh, stage begins, the judges actually want to hear witnesses three times a week. So the minute it actually begins, it's going to be quite 
uh, quick for a, a trial in Israel. What took a long time in Netanyahu's case was the investigations themselves. They took years and years, and a lot of people said that the attorney general, uh, Avichai Mandelblit, who was Netanyahu's own appointment, was taking his time. Of course, now he is uh, targeted by Netanyahu's loyalists as being an enemy. But at the time, there was a lot of criticism for how long it took. I think it should be pointed out, just to be fair, it is a major thing to investigate the prime minister of Israel. It is a major decision to indict him. It took a while, and it will take a while. And as you noted, it is better for Netanyahu, uh, from the political perspective, it is better for him to drag this out. I don't know if it's true for, from the legal perspective. I mean, there was always this uh, uh, story about his uh, uh, late lawyer, Yaakov Weinroth, saying you have to take a plea bargain uh, on these cases because they're pretty severe um, accusations, but but he never did. So I think there's a difference between how Netanyahu, the politician, is dealing with it and how Netanyahu, the defendant, should be dealing with it. I know you liked it when I talked about reverse ferret uh, a couple of weeks back, <laughs> Yoni, but this, this in, in, in British parlance, this is Jarndyce versus Jarndyce territory here. And that is the notorious legal case at the centre of the novel Bleak House by Charles Dickens, second Charles Dickens reference of the day. Um, the notion of a case that is so interminable that it goes on even down the generations until people have forgotten actually what the case was about, you know, years and years. And what you're telling me about Israeli justice, but particularly the Netanyahu case does feel like that. It, it, you know, it's as if, I mean, the, these are scandals and case files that were, you know, in the news in the previous decade and several years back. And the idea that it's just grinding on is and, really yeah. something. The fact that it drags on, in fact, that a lot of the details are, have already been published, right, and, and and the indictment was out for everyone to read, then Israelis have really made up their minds. There's no middle road Israeli waiting to still be convinced, right? Israelis, either if they, you know, dislike the anti-BB camp will say he's as guilty as sin, the pro-BB camp will say it's a it's a fabricated case, or maybe whatever he did doesn't rise to the level of, of a criminal offense. And you see the polls, 30% of Israelis think that Netanyahu can be their leader, This these cases notwithstanding. Um, so again, people have made up their mind. The end of the road is still that there are three judges in Jerusalem who have to make up their mind uh, in this case. It will, might take two years, it might take five, but they still will uh, bring a verdict at the end of the day. And public opinion plays no part in that, right? Nope, obviously not. So in that case, it's just a regular judicial case. I mean, if I was somebody who was just, you know, landing from Mars and just said, okay, bottom line, what is this case actually about? What is the sort of heart of the matter? Or in a way, I have to say the sort of more sleazy way of putting it is, you know, what's the worst thing he's accused of? Here? Oh, you know what? I will uh, I, I will answer your question uh, as I usually do. It's going to take a while uh, for me to answer <laughs> the question. But I will want to talk about, there are three different cases. I want to talk about one specific case, uh, which is the uh, uh, fraud and breach of trust case. It's nicknamed Case 2000 by the police. I must say it doesn't entail the harshest allegations about Netanyahu, but I, it's arguably the juiciest story. And it's, I think it's very indicative of the way that Netanyahu thinks. So we have to go back in time, uh, Jonathan, bear with me, to the year 2007. Uh, the billionaire, Jewish-American billionaire Sheldon Edelson uh, starts a newspaper in Israel called Israel Hayom. It is distributed for free and is considered very, very supportive of, of Benjamin Netanyahu to the extent that it is uh, uh, considered by many Israelis as Netanyahu's mouthpiece. Enter in the publisher of the then most popular newspaper in the country, Yediot Acharonot. The name of the publisher is Noni Moses, and he is obviously very upset by the fact that there's a 
new kid in town who is giving away the distributing away the the uh, newspaper for free, thus you know uh, basically hurting the revenues of Yediot Acharonot. Now, increasingly, Bibi Netanyahu's uh, supporters see Noni Moses, the publisher of this prominent newspaper, as the arch rival of Netanyahu and his newspaper becoming more and more anti-Bibi. To the extent that Netanyahu's inner circle called uh, Noni Moses, and I hope you're paying attention, they called him he who will not be named. Voldemort reference. Shh, don't say that out loud. Oh, I just said it. Sorry for younger listeners. No, no. Beautiful Hogwarts Don't say it out loud. But exactly, I mean, kudos to Mrs. Netanyahu for the cultural reference, but this is the way they treated this man. Now, somewhere around 2017, I'm fast-forwarding in time here, sometime around 2017, we were beginning to get in our newsroom the story, it's still very mysterious and clandestine, about the police investigating Netanyahu meeting with a businessman. We don't know who the businessman is. We're running around trying to get the name. And then I remember this morning, it was January 8th, 2017, our legal correspondent runs in the newsroom with a huge scoop. He says, I know who he is. And we say, who? And he says, it's Noni Moses. Now, our jaws dropped. Again, this is the arch rival of Netanyahu. And Netanyahu met with him on several occasions. And it's mind-boggling to the extent that if you take it further, the accusation is that Netanyahu met with him. Uh, he wanted to get supportive coverage from Yediot Acharonot and in return considered enacting legislation that would curb the revenues of his supporting newspaper, Israel Leom. Let's pause on that. As if Jeff Zucker... CNN president, met with President Donald Trump while he was still president and colluded with him to curb Fox News's ratings and revenues to get better coverage on CNN. Do you understand how mind-boggling this story is? Yeah, I mean... And the final... Because it's a left-right crossover just for financial advantage. Financial, it's a media, it's a huge psychological story and a media story and, of course, obviously a criminal story as well, but the, or criminal allegations, uh, uh, rather. But at the end of the day, the final twist is, of course, that we have the recordings of these conversations because Netanyahu ordered these recordings to actually happen. So whenever you want to compare Netanyahu to a certain president, and I know that you often compare him to President Trump, and we talk about the uh, differences and the similarities, this is more Nixonian than it is Trumpian. Politicians who insist on recording themselves is a whole category (laughs) that I don't really get. How do they ever think that's going to end well? I mean, the Nixon thing is the, you know, go-to example uh, and lesson, really, for, uh, you'd think, for all politicians, that it's never good for you for things to be recorded. If you want a note taken... That's a cautionary tale so big they should write a Grimm's fairy tale, an extra edition on that. Don't record yourself. Don't. And there was a lesson there and he didn't learn it. Mm -hmm. And so, as you say, it is Nixonian. I'm glad you mentioned the Nixon-Trump comparison question because it's, it's a good exam question whether... Bibi is resembles more closely Donald Trump, or you've mentioned Richard Nixon, because, of course, we're all thinking again about Donald Trump this week, and particularly, I think, the parallel with, with Netanyahu, because while he, Bibi, is in the dock in Jerusalem, Donald Trump is not physically, but on trial in Washington, D.C. at the same time. And there is something... Uh, remarkable and sort of synergistic about, if that's a word, about the idea or symbiotic, (laughs) even more the former, the two of them coming together in this moment that on, you know, the, the, the first day of this week, second day of this week, there they both were on trial, um, for different things, obviously. Donald Trump on trial in the Senate for the crime for which he was impeached by the House in the dying days of his presidency, namely, 
inciting an insurrection on Capitol Hill. Uh, and his jurors, his judges, aren't the judges in Jerusalem, uh, you know, pursuing a narrowly legal case. They are rather the hundred members of the United States Senate. So it's a very peculiar and you, in some ways uniquely American um, form of trial. It's more political than legal. But how um, uh, appropriate that the era, the sort of Trump-BB era, is, it ends with these two people uh, who have been like sort of twinned in a way, mm-hmm. both uh, on, on trial. And what's so interesting, I think, is it teases out the, the similarity between the two of them, but also a, a difference. I think it was often uh, uh, sort of slightly lazy where people said, oh, Netanyahu is the Israeli Trump. And I think Trump himself encouraged that. He called Boris Johnson Britain Trump. I think he meant Britain's Trump. But he he liked the idea that there were these sort of mini-me versions of Trump around the world uh, aping him. And in some cases, that was accurate. But with Bibi, I always think it was very inaccurate because Bibi got there first. I mean, literally first, in the sense of he was Prime Minister of Israel in 1996, when uh, uh, Trump was still just a real estate tycoon on the sort of gossip pages of the New York tabloids, but also the whole business of what Trump's politics have have been about and were about, populism and really developing a brilliant instinct for playing on people's fears, particularly fears of the outsider, fears of immigrants, uh, migrants, uh, and so on. Bibi really has the copyright on that. And so, you know, I always felt that um, Trump was really Bibi in English rather than Bibi Netanyahu was Trump in Hebrew. You know, it was Donald Trump who was Netanyahuian rather than Bibi being Trumpian. Yeah, and, and, now, and now it's really come together in the, in the form, in the proceedings going on in Jerusalem and in Washington this week. Yeah, I mean, that that basically Trump was the one taking the page out of Netanyahu's playbook and not the other way around. I, I think we should po- say that Netanyahu is markedly more sophisticated than Trump. Case in point, he is still in power, uh, right? I mean, he's he's smart and he's knowledgeable and he, had, he has held several positions in government over a course of a 40-year career. He isn't Trump. Uh, there are similar, there were similar tactics, more so in Netanyahu's later years, but they are different men. And I think the similarity also goes to the fact that they both kind of swallowed up the political sphere in their countries, right? So that nothing exists besides them. Uh, either you like him or you hate him. Of course, the U.S. is moving beyond that. Uh, Israel is still very much in in that uh, sentiment. Yeah, I think the mastery in particular of communications, television in both cases, and, um, you know, social media, particularly in Donald Trump's case. But yeah, that's absolutely right about the sort of gobbling up the oxygen in both societies. I I think you're, again, right to give Netanyahu more credit for sophistication and for intelligence, actually. I mean, he's not a He's a you know not a stupid man. He's a well-read man, etc. And Trump very much the opposite when it, in terms of you know reading and the kind of wider knowledge. But the big difference now is these proceedings because, as you've said, uh, Netanyahu's one is strictly legal. Donald Trump's is political. And just as you were citing those opinion polls in Israel that people have more or less made up their minds about Bibi Netanyahu uh, in America, I think those hundred jurors. It's it's a stretch to imagine any of those senators have not really made up their mind about Trump and about what happened on January the 6th. And so therefore, it's an odd form of trial because, you know, are these people even persuadable? Nevertheless, the Democrats are going for a very powerful, uh, emotional 
sort of case. They've been showing these videos of what happened on January the 6th, some of them very shocking, some footage that's not been seen before. And it does make you think that even though officially the procedure is in the room, the 100 people in the room, actually they are also addressing the court of public opinion Mm -hmm. and trying perhaps to ensure that Donald Trump is so tainted uh, by this proceeding that even if he is acquitted, he is you know, permanently stained in the mind of the American public uh, in time for 2024, and that the Republican Party itself will carry a kind of mark uh, by having stood with him. So I think that's the democratic play. In both countries, it's legal, it's political, it's 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 a mix, but there is this remarkable symmetry between the two of them. Yep, he always spoke of a special bond between the two, Netanyahu. I'm not sure this is exactly yeah, what he meant. Yeah, perhaps he didn't have this in mind. <laughs> well, at least Trump called him, is what I'm saying. Um, moving on to the issue of vaccination in Israel. Um, we haven't talked about this since last week, but we still need to say that this is taking um, an interesting uh, twist here. I mean, uh, the, the vaccination operation is, is in full swing, but the momentum seems to be slowing. Uh, and like in... I think every other country, even in the UK, there's an, a counter campaign, right? The anti-vaxxers. So there's been this rabbi who claimed that getting the vaccination would turn you gay, to which the head of the LGBTQ organization in Israel said, well, I guess we're going to have a membership increase. Um, <laughs> and of course, the, um, another rabbi was sort of a celebrity rabbi who, who you know, advised to his, uh, um, I guess, celebrities that uh, he came out with all kinds of claims saying that the, the vaccines haven't been tested and so far. And therefore risky. That's a part of of what's happening here. But I think the other part is that there are certain minority groups. And this is the bigger story. Uh, The ultra-Orthodox, the Arab Israelis, and interestingly, the immigrants from the former Soviet Union, all with their own reasons to deeply distrust, uh, have suspicion and distrust towards the uh, institutions of the state, and they are not going to be vaccinated. So 51% of Israeli Arabs, 49% of the immigrants from the former Soviet Union, 42% of the Khadim are saying they have no intention to go and get vaccinated. Those numbers are pretty staggering. They are shocking numbers. Something parallel is going on in other countries. Here in Britain, I live in a neighbourhood in London, in Hackney, where the local vaccination centre, which was going, making great progress, closed down for three days last week because of lack of attendance, people not turning up. And this is an area that has a very huge, very large black and minority ethnic population Mm -hmm. and a large, we've talked about it before, large Haredi population. So there is a parallel here. The take-up among minorities around the world seems to be a problem. Uh, What's, I think, puzzled people who are not in those minorities is what exactly is the fear given those same communities can see that the majority community is getting this vaccine. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if there are, and we know that these exist often in, in, in some of those communities we've mentioned, sort of conspiracy theories that say, ah, oh, this is really a microchip that's being embedded in us, and it's, or a narrative that this is particularly targeted to weaken our minority, whether that's black or uh, Asian or in the Israeli case, Arab citizens. How is that squared with the reality that, you know, the majority of the country are routinely going in to get vaccinated. Do they, you know, is the claim that somehow the vaccination will be different, different vaccine will be used against, say, Haredim or uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews or Arab uh, citizens of Israel? What? How exactly is that sort of working as a narrative inside those communities? Not only are these communities not going in large numbers, these are the communities in Israel, at least, that are 
hit the hardest by coronavirus, right? Same here. Same so here. it's it's amazing that these communities, again, not all of them, but a lot are not actually reaching for the easiest solution uh, there is. And I think, first, there's a lot of fake news going around, especially in the Arab-Israeli community. And when you add to that, the, again, this sort of deep-rooted uh, distrust of the of the system, of the institutions, this is what you get. They think it's not, you know, it's gonna not going to hit them hard. It's not going to be serious. Again, most of the sort of older population in Israel has already been vaccinated, so it's more the younger kind of part of, of all of these uh, communities. They prefer not to. I, I, I can't understand it myself. I don't understand. I can't put myself in their shoes. But this is what uh, what has been going on here. I mean, the good news is that 40 percent of Israelis have been uh, inoculated with one dose, uh, at least 28 uh, percent with the second. Schools have opened today. The numbers are still very high. So I don't know how that will uh, sort of uh, uh, register inside this whole mix. Right. Because obviously children under 16 are not being vaccinated. Um, so there's still a lot of questions open. But the, the good news is that the number of it's taken more than taking more than we thought it would, but the number of the severely ill in Israel is is dropping. It's dropping, and I, um, I and people here and around the world have noticed that. But it's not dropping by quite the numbers you would assume or hope for, given mm -hmm. that Israel has established itself as the the vaccine nation. And so there will be, I think, some dismay. And it just strikes me as interesting that. Because the logic of what you said about how high the refusal rate is among the, some of those sectors is that if you're Pfizer and you were thinking, we've done this plan with Israel, which is great because we're going to use Israel as the sort of test bed and show the world that what, how effective our vaccine is when you do blanket vaccination quickly – the numbers are going to be skewed because it won't be actually the perfect test bed because the ultimate percentage of the population that is inoculated will be lower than was hoped for mm -hmm. because it probably, I'm guessing, but the planners at Pfizer, the scientists, did not factor in refusal rates of close on 50% among you know, I think maybe they did factor them in among ultra-Orthodox and Arab Israelis, but you've mentioned Israelis of Russian heritage as well. These mm -hmm. are This is going to skew the overall number. And therefore, that model that scientists could have looked at around the world, you know, with the Israeli case, I'm wondering if it's actually not going to be that effective a sample because refusal rates may end up being higher in Israel than they would be if you picked, you know, Sweden or, um, you know, Vietnam or something. Why are you now picking Sweden and Vietnam? Stay here. I'm just saying. Don't take the vaccinations away from us. No, I'm going to make the case for the Israelis for a second and say that after all this, still, there are 100, almost 100, yesterday, 139,000 Israelis being inoculated. The numbers are still very high. Uh, uh, there are still a lot of Israelis going for this a great option of of vaccinations. And I think there is enough information that you mentioned Pfizer and what they would want. There's enough information that says, and this is important, right? We didn't know this for sure in, in the beginning, that the first uh, dose is not enough. You need the second. And I think a lot of the calculations Israel had, not only Pfizer, uh, were related to the fact that they thought the people were immune or ma mainly immune after the first dose and they discovered that you need the second boost, which is important. So I think we still we still give the good good data here, even though some of us are intransigent, but Israelis are still giving out the good data. And that's interesting about uh, the first day. So were Israelis behaving as if they were home free and fully safe and inoculated after the one dose mm -hmm. and going out partying yep. rather than waiting for the second? Was that happening sort of behaviorally? Mm, no, I think a 
people were still pretty, especially the 60 and up, they were pretty, still pretty careful. Well, here, people are not going to get their second dose for up to 12 weeks or so, and therefore having to remain locked in and uh, not yet jumping the queue. That said, it brings us effortlessly and seamlessly to the whole <laughs> question of chutzpah, which, uh, as you know, British people have almost no chutzpah when it comes to queue jumping, except for somebody at the very, very top. The unlikely recipient of our chutzpah award this week, uh, anyway, my nominee, is no less than Her Majesty the Queen. Because it, the shocked. papers revealed by The Guardian, yeah, there may be some ancient law I'm breaking by even mentioning <laughs> the, chutz, the word chutzpah in the same sentence as... Her Majesty. But uh, papers on Earth by The Guardian this week revealed that the Queen had lobbied and successfully lobbied the UK government, this is going back nearly 50 years, to change a a draft law in order to conceal her private wealth from the public. Um, Private wealth that would have been, in the words of one of her officials, embarrassing. Uh, that there was going to be a change in the law in Britain that would have made uh, shareholdings much more transparent officials in the palace got a little panicked because they realized the 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 great unwashed british public would discover first of all where the queen had put her money but also how much of it she had and therefore there was all this backroom negotiation between government ministers of the then conservative government in the early 1970s and her private lawyers to somehow come up with a structure which in the end was a state-backed shell corporation which very effectively placed a veil of secrecy over the Queen's private shareholdings and investments. Bit of a shock because the Queen, uh, you know, remains uh, untouchable here and untouched really by scandal. Yes, her children are constantly mired in scandal and grandchildren, uh, but not so much her. And, you know, people always pay tribute, even people like me who are staunchly small-R Republican committed to having an elected head of state, we have to bow and acknowledge that she has been, Elizabeth Windsor, has been an exemplary uh, head of state, rarely, almost never actually, putting a foot wrong. So this would count, this revelation would count as a rare example of something she herself has done via her lawyers that uh, doesn't uh, inspire total devotion. The interesting thing is, you know, it's caused, of course, some interest. It still won't change how people feel about her. She's in her mid-90s and uh, is a fixed point of stability and comfort in the society that has been rocked by change and the pandemic, etc. So I don't think it's going to even leave a, leave a mark on her. But nevertheless, I think a bit of a chutzpah that she wanted to get the law changed uh, to conceal her rather <laughs> extraordinary wealth. I love this chutzpah nomination. And I also think that I've just realized that a spin-off podcast of Jonathan Friedland talking about the royal family is in the works. As we speak, I just we I want to I want to hear should more we? and more of that. Yeah, we should do that. I'm just trying to think of sort of the crown in Yiddish is basically the sort of idea. Uh, there, there might be a way to adapt that. We can let, let's take it to Keshet. You know, we can we can pitch it. And I think see so. How it works. I think so. Um, I'm 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 working on it. My brain is like working on it as we speak. So go on, chutzpah um, nomination from you, please. <laughs> okay, here it goes. Um, chutzpah nomination is a little bit personal this week. Okay, will you allow it? I'm, I'm intrigued already. Um, a few years ago, a talented Israeli man named Ido Rosenblum, who's a well-known television personality in Israel, uh, invented a game show. Now, full disclosure, he is sort of related to me in the sense that we are sort of married. 
so he, uh, but he's a very incredibly talented uh, uh, writer and and producer and television personality and, you know, his taste in wives notwithstanding. So the game show he invented was called Boom. Uh, it's a trivia game show in which participants need to defuse a bomb. Fun Middle East humor. There's a model of a bomb and a colorful wires coming out and you have to cut the wrong answers and leave the right answer. And if you make a mistake, uh, the bomb sort of explodes in confetti or some sort of goo. Good fun. Uh, was a very successful format, sold to over 20 countries around the world. And lo and behold, a few weeks ago, he discovered an oddly similar version of the uh, game show I just described in Iran. Now, we can't actually watch it, but I can tell you the same model, same wires, same confetti and goo, different host, different language. We'll try and hear a little bit of the Hebrew vision and a little bit of the Farsi one. Just a second. The show is called The Wire in Iran. <clears throat> they uh, created it a year ago. I don't want to say they stole the... Um, the Israeli bomb, they maybe borrowed it. Um, but definitely, I think Iran steals Israeli bomb. Uh, best version of that story you could have thought of, right? I don't know how to say chutzpah Farsi, but I think this definitely constitutes as, uh, this as is that. This is a fantastic example of, of chutzpah to steal a format from Israeli television, but it could not be more perfect that they have literally stolen Israel's bomb. It is just too good. And I think you're allowed, even with the bias of family ties and marital ties, I think that must win. I think that's not just a nominee. That has to win this week's uh, Chutzpah Award. I hope you'll present the trophy uh, to Ido personally. The trophy in the, in the form of a bomb, of course, because that's well, that's what we're giving out this week. Look, what you do in your own time, your need is up to you. You know, that's <laughs> that's between you and Ido. But I think you should present that award to him. We've got two more awards to hand out. I'm going to nominate. This is not really funny, but it's um, well deserved. Which is our Mensch Award. Uh, I think we should nominate Andre Alexandrov, who is a journalist from Belarus. Uh, he has this week was detained, subjected to a making a forced confession. Uh, he is a, a brilliant independent journalist um, who's been writing and uh, on the on life there and the particularly the dictatorship really there uh, and new uh, journalistic organisations around the world. So we are adding our voice as journalists to them are demanding his release, but also the release of. Um, so many other imprisoned journalists in Belarus. I mean, it is uh, an amazing act of heroism. These people, hundreds of them, who are coming out every weekend, I think they particularly do it at the weekend, to demonstrate um, for political freedom and for to some modicum of democratic rights in Belarus. They've been doing it ever since uh, the election really genuinely was stolen in that country. Um, and so uh, Andre Alexandra and all the other journalists uh, who uh, are uh, jailed by the regime in Belarus, I think they uh, deserve our Mensch Award for this week. 
Agreed. I will put out my own nominee, which is uh, the local emergency response organization in Israel called Zaka. We spoke about their uh, founder a couple of weeks back. So they're volunteers, mostly ultra-Orthodox, uh, who, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but usually the ones tasked with horrible jobs of carrying uh, uh, the deceased from uh, emergency uh, um areas uh, in, in Israel. Um, in they do have all this notwithstanding, they ha- do have a good sense of humor and they tweeted about this new idea this week from the municipality of Nebrak, uh, the ultra-Orthodox city in the outskirts of Tel Aviv, to give out a free bag of, I want to say this in Yiddish English, cholent, right? This is how... I would say cholent as well. I mean, there are some people who say cholent. I mean, this is like schloff Well, we say cholent, so, I mean, we can argue about this yeah. for a while. Yeah. But the... the the Jewish the stew uh, out to the people who get their vaccinations. I think amazing sort of humor. I've seen the tweet and basically it says better to pick up a bag of cholent with your vaccine than get picked up in a body bag without a vaccine. Yeah. I mean, that is really Ju- dark Jewish you know, humor. Direct. It is. And, you know, given that Zaka are, you know, picking up people's body, uh, body parts, I mean, it is a sort of an amazing thing to do, but maybe it needs to be shocking and in your face. I think some of the health messaging uh, in you know, with previous uh, health issues, sometimes it has you know anti-smoking campaigns, for example. Sometimes they only uh, really penetrate when they do, you know, have an, a shock element. So here, this has got got a bit of humour, and obviously there is an incentive with the challenge and everything. But there is also a shock element in even just mentioning uh, body bags in connection with Zaka, given the work that organisation does. I think I'm very happy for them and our Belarusian journalists to be joint winners um, of <laughs> well, our Mensch Award. Look this at week us winner. always ending on the high, optimistic note in our program. <laughs> we're, we're generous souls, I think, both of us. <laughs> at least you are, for sure. Um, I'm going to uh, say our thank yous to Lior Friedman, Rom Atik, Yair Bashan, and Irad Eshel for original music. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with your friends, forward it, send it, text it, WhatsApp it, whatever you want to do. (laughs) Also, you should subscribe. I can't believe you haven't already subscribed what has got into you. Uh, Do a review at the bottom. Five-star reviews only. This is the hard sell you're getting here. This is Dan, a little bit of Jewish guilt. And a little bit of Jewish guilt. You don't call, you don't write. Do a review. Will it kill you? We're your closest allies. It's a special relationship. You've got to call us. Jonathan, I will see you next week.